Good morning. Let's go ahead and make our way in the Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7 this morning. We are going to take a moment this morning to address what I believe is a misconception that has morphed into a huge dilemma for the Christian church. I didn't intend to initially address this subject, but after spending 22 weeks going through the Hall of Faith and talking about faith uh, as the basis of our interaction with God, I feel it necessary to address a subject that I think is truly distorting the mindset of many Christians' understanding of God and their interaction with God and their relationship with God. And as we address this issue, I want everyone to know that I am not singling out anybody or any particular church or any particular individual, but I want to address an issue that has occurred and has been created over the last 40 years in the body of Christ. It is an issue of determining truth on the basis of feelings alone. It is an issue of determining our intimacy or our, the status of our relationship with God based on feelings alone. We are a very feelings-centered society and culture today. Feelings are often the basis for the reason that individuals determine something to be truthful or false. Feelings can often indicate to an individual their particular perception or perspective in any one particular subject matter. For example, we over the last week have been dealing with the issue of immigration in our country. Well, not just the last week, but the last several years. What is the correct and proper biblical solution for immigration? A lot of people are asking that question today. But when you see troubling images of parents and children being separated at the border, you go past the part of your brain of objectivity and you move into the, uh, the portion of your brain and your, and your heart of that of feelings. And seeing the kid as distraught as he or she is, you automatically determine what is right and wrong based upon that one particular picture in which you have seen. This is why we need to be very careful that when we determine something to be true or false or we look to solve an issue such as immigration... We must do it objectively, soberly, and we must look at it from every per, uh, perspective and not just the one that is being offered to us through the media. Do we understand that? It is a complex issue, right? Especially in a nation that's been built on immigration. But I think all of us believe today that our immigration uh, policies are failing because they're not being enforced or the borders are open or whatever it may be. And some may say, let's build a wall. Others may say something else and so forth. But when we see those pictures and we're moved inside of us emotionally and the passion starts to rage within us, 
we can move from objectivity into illogical reasoning simply due to emotional feelings. This is why when you study law, one of the first things a professor will tell you is that passion is the ruin of objectivity. We must be careful that passion does not supersede objectivity in many cases. You can be passionate about something. It doesn't necessarily make the thing right, and it doesn't necessarily make the thing the priority that you want it to be, and so forth. This is where objectivity comes in. This is the same basis reason that a doctor cannot operate on a family member a wife or a husband who has a son or a daughter who comes to the emergency room and the doctor sees his child or her child laying there in the bed, they then have to excuse themselves, recuse themselves, and allow another doctor who can objectively treat their child. What's happened in the Christian church is that we have allowed that same movement of feelings to dictate our intimacy with God. We've allowed that same basis of feelings to determine what is truth and what is not truth from the Word of God. And as a result, we have now such a distorted understanding that still to this day, the number one reason that people attend church in the United States of America is in the hopes of feeling better afterwards. Now, nothing wrong with that, right? But is that the goal and objective that God has set forth for church? Is it the priority? Is it my priority that each and every Sunday I make it uh, my point to make you feel better? Is that the type of pastor you would want? Is that the type of teacher you would want? Or do you want an individual that will take you through the Word of God, including the uncomfortable portions, including those portions that convict and challenge us to the core individually, those things that may be unpopular in our society, but yet still are inspired by the Holy Spirit and mandated for the Christian church. But however, if my first objective is that, oh, well, you know, I want them to feel better after they come to our church. And so if they're sad, I'll do hand puppets to make them laugh. If they're, you know, happy, I'll make them, you know, hilariously joyful in some way by telling them some cute and uh, moving and emotional story about some circumstance and so forth. I believe that we must be very careful, especially when it comes to feelings determining truth, that we reconsider our methodology in which we use to determine what is true or not. If I am solely coming to church to feel better, then I must ask myself, what does the Bible say about me attending church as a believer? The Bible clearly instructs that as a believer in Jesus Christ, we should attend a church. We are to stir each other up in good works. We are to encourage one another. We are to love one another. We are to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. My job is to equip you to fulfill the work of the ministry that God would have for you as a believer in Jesus Christ. 
I do not believe in spectators in the body of Christ. I believe that we are all active participants in some way, shape, or form within that body. And as a result, my job as your pastor is to equip you for the work of the ministry. But if my sole objective uh, is to simply make you feel better, then I will never accomplish that. You know, we've all been to the buffets, haven't we? Some, like me, more than others. And it's amazing. You know, the kids love to go to the dessert, you know, where the ice cream is and where the cakes are and where the cookies are and so forth. But I've never seen kids rejoice over the vegetables. I've never seen a kid do a happy dance in front of broccoli there in the middle of the buffet. For some reason, the color green is just repulsive in so many different ways to individuals when it comes to vegetables. Now, you know that that child may be very happy after his visit to the buffet if all he ever does is eat of the cakes, candies, cookies, and so forth. But he's not going to be very healthy as an individual. He's going to leave there on a sugar high that is inevitably going to end in a collapse, correct? And that's the problem with feelings, isn't it? They don't last. One person said it this way. In fact, I think it was me, that feelings are like the rides at Disney World. For a 15-second high, you have to wait three and a half hours. And sometimes those feelings, those highs, are uh, intermittent amongst other periods where we just wait for that high again. So as a result, the church today, many are coming to church. They are looking for messages. They are looking for churches that are simply going to focus on that objective. And literally, they don't understand these individuals, why they're not growing in Christ. Churches don't understand why we have an epidemic of carnality running rampant within the church today. And Paul the Apostle addresses this subject in a very unique way in the second letter to the book of the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. As the Corinthian church was going through a very difficult time, if you look with me in chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, you will discover very quickly, he encourages them by saying, so we do not lose heart, Though for our outer selves is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not unto the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul's saying here that the only way that we are going to endure the difficulties of this world and society is to look past them. Here he is making the argument that whatever difficulty that I find myself in, whatever moment of suffering that I find myself enduring at this moment is working in me for a purpose. As Paul says, for all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. 
So first and foremost, we know that it's working in us to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ, but it's also working in us for a reward, a weight of glory for eternity. Someone who is simply looking to feel better, to have an emotional experience with God, someone who is looking to confirm their relationship with God by some kind of uh, emotional sensation or temporal experience, is certainly, that person certainly does not have eternity in mind, does he or she? It's the moment, it's the temporary, and so forth. The moment our society became a feeling-based society, we became one of the most insecure societies in the world. This is why insecurity is running rampant through our nation. Psychologists are addressing the issue of insecurity in the lives of more people today than ever before within our nation. I believe that there's a direct correlation, of course, that with the abandonment of God. But feelings are like sand underneath our feet, and they are incapable of supporting us through the difficult times of life, are they? Feelings change with the wind, don't they? And they can change for all different kinds of reason. You can be the happiest person in the world and having a great day, and then you go home and decide to watch Old Yeller, and then you're done for. That's it. Or you can be one of the saddest people in the world and go and eat a couple of pounds of chocolate and all of a sudden you feel better, don't you? They're moving targets. They don't substantiate and settle in any one particular place or position to allow you to have any type of security. And feelings, because they pass so readily, when it comes to, of course, the situation of love... This is why people can love someone. I'm falling in love with you, and I later then can decide to fall out of love with you. Now, please understand, that is completely foreign to a biblical understanding of love. Love is a choice that we make. It's a commitment that we make. It's a verb in which we act upon selflessly and sacrificially. Completely different than our culture understanding of love altogether. But when we come in and we determine that we are going to interact on the basis of feelings with God, do you know what our relationship is going to look like if it was uh, grafted out for us? It would look like a roller coaster, wouldn't it? It'd be constantly up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. Instead of having any kind of single trajectory, any kind of stability within our relationship with God. And that's not the type of relationship with, God, relationship with Him that He wants you to have. Now, am I advocating that we should be completely stoic in all of our endeavors? Of course not. I believe that we can be brought to a moment of tears as we read the Word of God and realize what Christ has done on our behalf. I believe we can be overwhelmed with the goodness of God in the wake of the blessings that He has shown us from heavenly places. I believe that we can be provoked to anger when we see the unrighteousness of the world swell in the capacity in which it is. I believe that we can find determination by wanting to go one step further, one mile further, but those things cannot be the sole basis in which I place my 
relationship with God upon. It must be faith. Faith. It must be faith, not feelings. It is very concerning to me when individuals come to me and they feel like, you know, the Lord just doesn't love me this week, or God seems so distant from me this week, or whatever it may be. And when you begin to ask them why they feel that way, it's because I don't know. I just feel that way. They don't have a reasoning for it. They just feel that way. We have given feelings such an authority in our lives that we allow them then to determine reality. But feelings don't determine reality, do they? I can feel one way and it has no impact upon the reality in which I face whatsoever. But my faith allows me to work within a reality that I physically cannot see. And that is the realm of God. I don't see God physically, but I work and live and and walk within the reality of his existence and the reality of the Holy Spirit and the reality of the truth of his word and the reality of the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection, etc. Faith allows me to do that with confidence, with assurance. Feelings will constantly be changing and challenging the understanding of that unseen reality within a seen physical reality. My feelings will constantly change. If you've ever seen a marriage between two people that are, is solely based on feelings, it's, it's, it's hard to watch. I, I don't know if he loves me you know, today. You know, I said I love you when he left, and, and, she, and you know, he never said it back to me. I, I, what, do I, what do I read into that? Or, you know. She stopped cutting the crust off the, my peanut butter and jelly. I'm really taken back. I think she wants a divorce. Right? There has to be something stronger in the most sacred relationship between a husband and a wife. Dina doesn't have to tell me that she loves me each and every day. I like it. I like it a lot. But if she doesn't and she forgets one day, it doesn't mean that she doesn't love me, does it? If she forgets to cut off my peanut butter and jelly sandwich crust, I just send it back, you know. But of course it doesn't mean she doesn't love me. See, feelings are often based on conditions. Now notice what Paul does here in in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He sees they're going through a very difficult time. He's talking and asking them to look past the temporal comforts and he wants them to focus on eternity. He does this by first reminding them of the eternal reality in which they live, verse 1 of chapter 5, for we know that if this tent, that is our earthly body's home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on the heavenly dwelling, if indeed uh, by putting it on we may not be found naked." For while we are still in this tent, again referring to this physical body, we groan, being burdened by it. Not that we would be unclothed altogether, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is uh, mortal may be swallowed up by life. And he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. 
when we read the Word of God on a Sunday morning, I am hopefully once again reminding you of the eternal reality in which we live. That's what Paul has just done here. He says, remember that this tent, and he uses a word in the Greek, it's, it's a temporal dwelling, it's something that's passing, it's something that a nomad would use in the wilderness. This tent in which we dwell, this physical body, one day will be replaced by a glorified body made by the hands of God. And as a reality, that's the truth that we can place our faith upon to allow us to endure the temporal difficulties of the moment. But I don't feel that way. But Paul's saying it doesn't matter how you feel, that's still the truth. By reminding them of this. And of course, he then further progresses the thought by verse 6. So we are always of good courage. In the face of disappointment, in the face of, uh, you know, the moment where we begin to doubt, the, f- the moment we begin to fear and anxiety creeps into our heart and worry, we can be of good courage because the reality is, is that one day this tent will be replaced by a glorified body no longer subjected to sin and death. That's what he's saying here. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. And now here's our verse. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive and do for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We walk by faith and not by sight in the most uh, important area of our life, and that is our salvation. Faith is required at this point in time because my salvation has not been fully realized in the glorification of myself, which will take place the moment I am there before God in heaven. So up until that time, when it now becomes a physical reality, I now walk by faith in the spiritual reality that it will once one time be. That's what Paul is arguing here. And he's saying, let us not rely on the senses to determine the basis of truth, to determine the basis of status of our relationship with God. Let us rely solely upon faith to guide us through these times of difficulty that we experience within our life. Now, if you can catch what I'm saying, this will transform your life. It means that I can look at my circumstances, how favorable they are or how unfavorable they are, and I can still draw the same conclusion. Nothing has changed between God and I. The realities and the promises that God has made to me, He still will fulfill regardless of my circumstances being horrible and difficult or my circumstances being favorable and pleasant. It doesn't matter. The reality that God has with me is the reality that I must place my faith upon. The Corinthian church, when Paul first wrote to them, was in an arrested state of growth. 
they were carnal. He calls them carnal Christians. Christians who are living not after the spirit, but after the old life. They were blessed with numerous spiritual gifts, and, yes, and yet they were still immature. They were still carnal. They were still struggling through it all. And Paul wanted to raise the bar. He wanted to encourage them to grow into maturity in their faith. And so he wrote them a letter to encourage. That was the first letter. Then they had made some changes and they had gotten some things organized and right and correct before God. And then he wrote the second letter, which we're looking at right now together. He now then can introduce deeper concepts and deeper theology to them now that they've gotten past their stage of carnality. But one of the objectives that that Paul had was the fact that he no longer wanted the Christians in Corinth to relate to God in the same manner that they were relating to the pagan gods in which they once worshipped. The pagan gods were worshipped through the, the senses of an individual. Hearing, seeing, you know, touching, feeling, etc. And even smells were used in different aroma sacrifices onto the pagan gods to stimulate the worship between the individual and that pagan god to confirm or to deny, to establish or to repel that relationship with the pagan god and the individual. And Paul made it clear that, no, when it comes to our relationship with God, we must move past the senses, such as sight and hearing and smelling and feeling and so forth, to faith. Because he says all of these things are misleading and they can be interpreted very subjectively by the individual or by whoever. Interesting comment I heard once about an individual who has been attending uh, a therapist for a long period of time, and, and, I, and they've, they're starting to come to the conclusion that the therapist isn't really helping them with their problem. And I asked them, I said, what did you anticipate happening? Well, I, I, I imagined she would finally bring me to a point where I could resolve these issues, but basically, she's basically just telling me why I think the way I think. I think that was very interesting. And she began to question the viability of this course of action for her personal life. Could this individual offer me the same healing? She asked. And I said, the healing that Christ gives us is a healing that is supernatural, apart from ourselves or apart from any human intervention. We become a new creation in God. It is the old that we keep dealing with and it is the old that we keep trying to um, fix, correct, clean up. But the power of the gospel is a transformative uh, process that takes us from darkness to light, from death to life, and we are now new creations in Christ that God, through his word and the Holy Spirit, builds on upon where God not only shows us why we are doing what we are doing due to the old nature, but he also shows us how we can cease from doing those things through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul's whole argument was. If we walk according to the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, he says. Very interesting. But Paul saying to these Corinthian believers, let us understand that the intent of the pagan relationship was not an eternal perspective. The attempt of the pagan relationship with a pagan god was that of 
temporal blessings and temporal pleasures. And Paul says we must get past that ideology, we must get past that thinking to truly understand what it means to walk with God. As Paul continues on, he makes it abundantly clear that if we simply reduce our experiences with God to the adaptations to the five the senses that we have we are going to be lacking significantly now some of you remember may remember that 30 years ago churches were trying to make the worship experience with god a multifaceted sensual experience sight sound smells touch etc And in their endeavor to do that, they found that people were having experiences and they were interpreting those spirits as very very, uh, subjectively. But none of them were growing in their faith to maturity. They were having good experiences, but they weren't growing up in their faith. Paul says the only way you will grow up is through the teaching of the Word of God. The only way we'll mature as a believer is to mature through the Spirit working in and through the Word of God in the heart and the life of the believer. And so what started about 30, 40 years ago, when churches started to create environments that pleased the senses, that drew people in through methodologies that uh, appealed to the old nature, what happened after a while, in their attempt to create what they called ministry moments, it was a moment of opportunity between the church and the individual where they would therefore find them receptive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are their words and not mine. But as a result to this endeavor that began 40-some years ago, what we see consistently now placed within the church is that of this continued appeal to the old nature. Being it references to music. Last Easter, a church opened their Easter service with ACDC's Highway to Hell. Okay? I would have gone Van Halen running with the devil. No. But think of it for a moment. I understand what they're trying to do. But is that the way you really kick it off? Does it not set the, right, the wrong tone? We went through years and decades of books being written that took the most modern movies that were in the cinema or in the theaters at that time and showed the gospel within them in some way, shape, or form to try to reach and try to bring people to saving faith. And also, they were used for Bible studies. You know, we had a whole Bible study after the Andy Griffith show. I don't know if you saw that. That was one of my favorite ones. I always wanted to be like Don Knotts, you know, Barney. Much of the teaching, because they wanted to have immediate impact and the resolution in the lives of the individuals, they turned to psychology, secular psychology, rather than biblical theology. When it came to determining truth, they adopted pragmatism rather than allowing the organic nature of the Word of God in which it was written to take a foothold within the, in the life of the believer, create roots, and then begin to grow 
up in that manner. And as a result, to keep people there, they had to keep furthering these things till it got so weird that you didn't even know you were in church anymore. And now we have a whole culture and society that has now been uh, cultivated to have an appetite after these things rather than simply the Word of God. And of course, like Paul, they discovered that these people would remain in that carnal state, not growing in their Christian faith. And after 30 years of watching the body of Christ go this way, we now see that feelings are truly the basis in which truth is determined for many rather than faith. It is the manner in which the status of the relationship with God is determined rather than that of faith. The Bible written in the way that it was gives us a big picture of human history from Genesis to its ending in Revelation. Human history is found within it. The heart of man is found within it. The heart of God is found within it. Uniquely created and inspired by the Holy Spirit through the writers in which they wrote, the individual letters and books and so forth of this Bible, God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness in the Word of God. Anything else is just a supplement compared to what the main meal should be. And I believe that this movement that came about has prepared the church for the signs and wonders experiences that many are looking forward to that will draw many away in the great apostasy of the last days. For many, it has created a self-serving Christianity, a man-centered relationship with God, where God is merely a supplement to my daily life. And it's looking to God, God, what can you do for me, rather than looking to God and saying, what can I do for you? How can I make God's word work for me in my life? Those are the questions and the mindsets of many who come into church today who are based of basing everything upon feeling rather than fact. Now, does this mean that, again, feelings cannot be useful? Of course they can. But we cannot solely allow them to be the source, the sole source of our identifying of truth and our identifying of our status in our relationship with God. In closing, if you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. We find that the writer of Hebrews, in which we had spent now 20-some weeks looking at, tells us about faith, describing what it is for us as believers in Jesus Christ. He says very clearly, the writer of Hebrews says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and the conviction of things not seen. Faith gives me, number one, an assurance. It allows me to feel secure in an incredibly insecure world. Now, faith isn't an element in and of itself. It is not the size of my personal faith that counts. For Jesus says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can remove mountains. 
The point is, is that who is that faith attached to or what is that faith attached to that matters? And once you understand that we serve and have a relationship and, a, and an incredible love relationship with a very big God, my faith can allow me security in a very, like I say, insecure world. It allows me to navigate those circumstances of my life that are troubling. It allows me to see through them to the other side. It allows me to see purpose in and, in, in and of them where I may not find purpose at all. To know that God has all things in control at all times. To know that he allows certain trials and difficulties in my life for a purpose to conform me into the image of Christ. To allow me to know that this is furthering the reward that I shall receive in the heaven for all eternity. Now, all of a sudden, my circumstances and my difficulties, there's some reasoning and sense to it all. Because God is certainly more concerned with my eternal glory than he is with my temporal comfort. And that is the perspective that these individuals had. 242 times in the New Testament, this faith is the basis in which we determine truth and which we determine our status and our relationship with God upon. In fact, the word feelings is rarely used in the Bible whatsoever. It is used generally to describe a feeling of uh, a negative feeling most of the time and occasionally to describe a feeling towards another individual, but rarely towards God. Well, when you talk about love, aren't you talking about a feeling? That's what we're going to address in our next series. Because the biblical understanding of love is so superior to the incredibly distorted and warped view of love that we have today. It's amazing. Many have written on this subject. They have changed passages of the Bible to reflect a more feeling-oriented society. And one of the most terrible works <laughs> that does this, this is going some years back, uh, was a, a rendering of the Bible by a man named Eugene Peterson called The Message. It is not a Bible, it is an opinion. It's a commentary at best. But Eugene Peterson certainly, in 40 different New Testament verses, exploits a feeling-based relationship between an individual and God. Where he changes words that from thinking and contemplating, where mind and reason are involved in the process, he simply reduces them to feelings in the individual. And as a result, we've seen that, you know, many have cultivated this type of relationship with God through these kind of works. This is why we must be very careful. There are wonderful Christian books out there, and I am thankful for them. Supplements to our daily Bible reading. They are never meant to be a replacement to our daily Bible reading. They are meant to be a healthy supplement. And of course, there are some fantastic books. C.H. Spurgeon, A.W. Tozer, Warren Worsby, C.S. Lewis, you know, and so forth. And of course, you can benefit from these incredibly godly men and women greatly. However, though, if we decide to make them our main supplement, our main diet, 
they will often reflect the current cultural concepts of God within them and begin to distort your biblical concept of God. That's why here we want to give you the truth. Now, are we saying we're the only ones that have the truth? Absolutely not. The Word of God is the truth. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God but through me. His Word is truth. He states that and sees it and raises it higher than himself to say that my Word shall never pass away. We will always do our... (laughs) Did my voice just crack there? 50 years old, I finally reached puberty. Uh, Good to know. I'll probably get acne next week. Anyway, I don't know where I'd go off on those things. That being said, when it comes to truth, the Word of God is the source of truth for the believer. It is the sole authority for all things spiritual for the believer in Jesus Christ. We believe it to be infallible. We believe it to be inspired by God. And what we do is that we teach you the Word of God. We try to bring you back to the century in which it was written so you may see it through their eyes and in that light. To give you a historical understanding of what it meant then, because what it meant then is what it means today for us. And as a result, sometimes you'll come and say, well, you know, we, we, we're in a passage of Scripture and this wasn't particularly relative to me to, at the moment but I know that someday it will be. God is equipping me beforehand. You know, and sometimes, let's be honest, we come to church and we talk about a subject that may not personally hit you at the moment. But I guarantee you it will certainly equip you for the future. You know, we've all been through high school, I think, here. And as we were going through high school, we took classes and we came home to our parents and said, listen, I don't know why I'm taking this class. I'm never going to use it in life. What class is it? Reading? (laughs) Math? Many said that about history, and aren't we reaping what we've sown because of that? Because we don't know history, we're doomed to repeat it in so many different ways today. So as a result, guys, we here at Calvary Chapel, I now make the commitment to you once again, 20 years I have been doing it, We want to bring you the Word of God in the best of our ability to interpret it in the manner in which we believe it was understood and interpreted by those who originally read it, giving proper modern-day application to it for you to use in your life, but most importantly, to cultivate your understanding of God to allow your faith in Him to grow and allowing that faith to be the basis in which you place your understanding of truth, because there's many truths in the Bible that must be embraced and believed by faith. I'm not going to deny that. But when you understand who God is and why he's given us those things, then you have a context in which to place it that allows you to embrace it. But secondly, what we also want to do here is allow you to grow to maturity. And as much as we would love to spend all the time each and every Sunday at the dessert counter, we got to hit the vegetables. This week I saw a video on Facebook of 
just one child after another, reacting to his parents' introduction of vegetables. It was hilarious. You would have thought that some of these kids were being tortured in some ungodly way. They're kicking and screaming. They're, you know, stuff's flowing from their mouths. They're, rile- they're jumping up and down on the floor like they're having seizures just because they're asked to eat a green bean. You know, some of the word of God is going to be like that for us, but that's the good stuff. That's the stuff that's going to help us to grow. And so as we move forward, We commit this to you once again here at this church that I will do my best, my best to give you the most clear, readily available interpretation of a historical grammatical nature to you each and every Sunday. Does this mean that we're always going to agree with everyone in the Christian body? No. Does this mean other Christians who love Jesus as much as we do will have different interpretations of passages of Scripture? Yes. But there are areas that are non-negotiable that we cannot compromise upon, and there are others that we can be very charitable upon and allow the others to, you know, hold those positions and still remain in fellowship and in unity with them as our brothers and sisters in Christ. But again... Feelings will truly rob you from the basis of the the relationship that God desires to have with you through faith. And so I ask you this morning to take your heart before the Lord and allow Him to sort through it, to show you if you are basing things on mere feelings, opinions, ideas, philosophies, ideologies, whatever it may be, that he would cut through that and show you that there's something better. Make sense?